Welcome to the EAU podcast. Today we welcome back Professor Nicholas Motet, Chair of the EAU Guidelines Panel for Prostate Cancer. In this episode, he discusses the changes in the new EAU Guidelines for Prostate Cancer Treatment relating to genetic testing, M1 disease and castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Professor Motet, this year there is a new guideline about genetic testing in prostate cancer. Could you discuss what these new guidelines are? Which patients have increased risk? Which patients should we consider testing? How and why should we test? First of all, about screening patients at risk. We all know that family history and ethnic background are associated with increased risk of prostate cancer, suggesting uh, a genetic predisposition. It has been repeatedly shown in unselected prostate cancer patients that between 10 to 15% of them carry a a germline mutation that is pathogenic. The most frequent one is BRAC1 and BRAC2 mutations, but also ATM, CHEC2, and PALB2. The percentage depends on the... the, uh, cohort that were analyzed, but roughly, specifically for BRAC1 and 2 mutations, patients were, uh, were seen with these mutations, were seen to have a more aggressive disease, a higher T-stage, a higher ESIP score, a higher nodal involvement risk, and metastasis or diagnosis. And stage by stage, it seemed that per se, when you carry a BRAC1 and 2 mutation, you have a higher risk of death. So it has been suggested for, by the guidelines that uh, you should consider germline testing in men with high-risk prostate cancer who have a family member diagnosed with prostate cancer before 60 years of age. You should also consider germline testing in men with multiple family members diagnosed with prostate cancer before 60 years of age, or for a family member who died from prostate cancer. And finally, you might also consider germline testing in men with family history of high-risk germline testing or high-risk germline mutations like breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, for example. All these recommendations are weak, and you have to realize that when you do a germline testing, you need a genetician and you need to discuss in depth and in details all the pros and cons for men. It might be very helpful for the patient itself. It might also be even more helpful for the family of these men. Where are we in 2021 with regards to the treatment of M1 disease? I want to emphasize that we have modified a little bit two things. The first one, and if you treat patients with newly diagnosed low-volume disease with prostate treatment, the only valid option so far is radiotherapy. Radical prostatectomy for us must be considered as experimental. The second point is that when you treat these patients with prostate radiotherapy, you must follow the rules that were applied in Stampede, that is prostate only, it's not prostate plus wool pelvis. And furthermore, if it's prostate only, 
it should be either 55 grays in 20 fractions of a four weeks or 36 gray in six weekly fractions of six gray. This means a biological equivalent total dose of 72 grays. You don't need to increase a dose to 76 or 80 grays and you don't need to irradiate the whole pelvis. Furthermore, we re-emphasize the fact that metastasis-directed therapy for M1 patients, whatever newly diagnosed or, or relapsing patients with, uh, with few spots, we fully recognize again that this metastasis-directed therapy should only be considered as experimental and should only be done in well-designed prospective cohorts or better in randomized trials. And it's a strong recommendation. The last point to we wanted to clarify in M1 disease is, although the best evidence is there for newly diagnosed M1 disease, we consider it of importance to discuss combination of ADT plus something in all M1 patients that is newly diagnosed and, and that's new, that's clarified at least, those patients will relapse to M1 disease after local treatment. The final point to clarify in M1 disease, and it's a complete change regarding all the, the previous guidelines, is that in a patient who has a complete response based of a very good PSA response after during the treatment, we urge you to consider regular imaging, even when the patient remains asymptomatic with a very flat PSA. It's a weak recommendation and it comes from a charted trial where 20% minimum of those patients well responding with a flat PSA had already an imaging progression despite a very constant flat PSA, showing a catheter resistance status defined by imaging progression. This might, we might, with doing this, we might find catheter resistant disease earlier, but we still don't know if this change the outcome of the patients. What are the changes for the castrate-resistant prostate cancer guidelines? Can you explain the options in non-metastatic prostate cancer? And what about metastatic CRPC? Can you tell us something on olaparib and sequencing of ARTA, the androgen receptor-targeted agents? The first one you're absolutely for sure aware of if it was a non-metastatic CRPC, let me remind you, they are only defined by bone scan and CT scan, and we do not consider that any PET imaging at that stage has any role. It's fully recognized that when you deal with a doubling time of less than 10 months, apalutamide, dirolutamide, and enzalutamide improved med-free survival with a hazard ratio ranging from 0.29 to 0.41. But what has also been fully shown now is that these three drugs also clearly improve the overall survival with a hazard ratio ranging from 0.69 to 0.78. It's impossible to say 
that any drug is better to any other, but when you treat the non-metastatic high-risk CRPC with one of these three drugs, you improve the overall survival of the patient. Regarding the metastatic CRPC patients, we have few changes. The first one is that we have the PARP inhibitors for metastatic CRPC. The PARP inhibitors means you treat patients who have uh, a BRAC1 and BRAC2 mutation, and this comes from a randomized controlled trial, the PROFOUND trial, where Olaparib was administered compared to an ARTA in patients who progressed after at least one ARTA. Most patients were heavily pretreated with one or two chemotherapy regimens, and all the patients have already received one ARTA, and when you gave them Olaparib, you had, you had a clear progression-free survival benefit, but, and that was a primary endpoint, but you also had an overall survival benefit with a clear p-value of 0.017. This only true for patients with BRAC1, BRAC2, and ATM mutation, and mainly for BRAC1 and 2. It has also to be emphasized that there was a huge crossover for the patient in the control arm, and despite this crossover, the survival benefited there. Olaparib is approved in Europe for BRAC1 and BRAC2 alterations, either somatic or genetic. And uh, the, the test to use remained unproven in the trial. It was only one test, the only test that is FDA approved, the foundation, foundation one test, but it's not mandatory to use this one. Whatever the test you're using, it's correct. The second point on CRPC is a sequencing, and we detail a little bit the various sequences that are possible, and especially emphasize the fact that an ARTA after an ARTA in chemo-naive patient is probably not such a good idea, and it, it's considered to be a weak recommendation not to, to use, uh, to sequence uh, ARTAs after ARTAs, except maybe in patients who have no other option and who are still fit enough to receive a second one, but do not expect that much from those men. And probably in those men who failed, who failed an auto, um, um, the best supportive care might be the preferred option. If you're just dealing with progression for survival and PSA response rate, it seems that starting with Abby, followed by Enza, leads to a better second response rate compared to the opposite, starting with ENSA followed by Abby. But none of this regimen improved overall survival. So it's impossible to say that it's a good option to go that way. And the final point regarding metastatic CRPC is the PSMA-linked therapy. All these agents must be considered as experimental, the most advanced one being lutetium, linked to, PET PS, linked to PSMA. It's based on a randomized trial comparing lutetium 
with cabacitic cell, and it was shown that at least in terms of response, lutetium was superior compared to cabacitaxel. It was not fully published when we wrote the text, now it's fully published. So this is uh, these represent the major change we had in castrate resistance status. It's a it's an ongoing it's an ongoing process that changed every few months, and on every meeting you have new things. Probably the most important message is that do not keep going with the androgen axis targeted therapy. Do not sequence endless autos and treat the patients in a multidisciplinary way and a multidisciplinary panel and team. That's the best approach and the best advice we can suggest. Thank you for joining Professor Motet for this episode of EAU podcast on prostate cancer treatment. For further information on the EAU guidelines on prostate cancer, please visit our website www.euroweb.org forward slash guidelines. For more EAU podcasts, please go to your favourite podcast app and subscribe to our EAU podcast channel for regular updates.